Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, what a, what a good reminder we've already been given this morning of the wise and the marvelous purpose of our God. It is true, Father, that we recognize the world as not being what it ought to be, what you intend it to be, and this idea of Seeking to return to the garden has been a part of popular culture. It's been a part of Western culture and its thinking uh, for a long time. And yet so often, Father, in our minds, this idea of returning to the garden is, is imagined in some sort of whimsical and often very personal and subjective way as the circumstances of life becoming what we would have them to be. Whether it's an ideological utopia or uh, a personal life that, that plays out in the way that we had always hoped and dreamed. Whether it's a desire for a, a country, a desire for a family, a desire for for the world of men, a desire for the planet itself. Father, we have many ways of conceiving of returning to the garden. But I pray that we would think of it in the sense in which, as we've been reminded, you have already, in substance, brought your creation back to the splendor of Eden. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of that new creation and the promise, the sure hope of all things sharing in that renewal, the consummation to come. And so may we be, Father, people who have our hearts and our minds set on things above, set on the reality that is embodied and entailed by the resurrection of Jesus and our share in that resurrection. May our gospel be the good news of new creation. And may people see it manifested in us as we bear the fragrance of the risen glorified Savior in every place. I pray for your blessing upon this time in your scripture as we continue, Father, our worship. And I pray that you would capture each one of our hearts and that you would fill us with joy, all peace and hope in believing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Tim mentioned, we've been considering this theme of lament as a part of this second larger section in our consideration of the Psalms. Uh, and this larger section, I've 
kind of titled in my own mind is the challenges of sonship. If the Psalms are the songs of sonship, songs composed by Israel in the context of its own sonship and its sense of its relationship with God, um, then we certainly see that throughout the Psalms, Israel's sonship was a challenging thing. And as Tim mentioned, it's really because of this dynamic of already but not yet. You know, my, my mind was thinking of 1 John where uh, John says in chapter 3, Behold how great a love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. And yet, and yet, it doesn't presently appear what it shall be. But in that day, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. We shall know even as we are fully known. And so this dynamic of a sonship that is already but not yet, already fully, truly, we are children of God, sharers in the life of God, in the resurrected, glorified son, children in the son. And yet, and yet, we beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed incrementally into the same likeness from glory to glory by the Spirit who is the Lord. And so there's this oughtness, there's this lacking, there's this longing that characterizes our sonship. And so it was for Israel in the time of preparation. If it's true of us as sharers in this uh, consummate life of God that is in the Messiah, how much more for Israel in the history of preparation when they were waiting for God to arise and do this great messianic work. And so the challenge of sonship is centered in this idea of lament or lamentation. And that's why we spent a couple weeks considering it as a central theme that weaves through the Psalms. Lament as reflecting this sense of longing in the context of lack. Things falling short, things coming short of what they ought to be, even what they are in substance. And as we saw, these psalms of lament tend to have an ascending quality to them. They begin maybe even at a point of despair, a point of of discouragement. But they rise and they rise to a point of hope and confidence that is grounded in faith. Grounded in faith. And so lament and faith go together throughout the Psalms and really throughout the scriptures. And in fact, in this age, in this already but not yet circumstance in which we live, uh, faith is always joined to lament. Faith is the confidence of what is true and that confidence of what is true and what it is that God is doing is lived out in the context of things not yet being what they will be. And so the two are inseparable. They imply each other and they interpret each other. So as we've considered this idea of lament, I want to also consider this challenge of faith and hope. If sonship is attended with lament in the present already but not yet world that we inhabit, 
So it also very much is bound up in this idea of faith and hope. And the truth is that faith will abide forever. Faith is the very essence of what sonship is about. Faith is this knowledge of the God who is true and the ordering of our existence, our understanding, our thinking, our practices in accordance with that truth. The full conformity to who God is and who we are as his image children. And therefore, faith will continue forever. We will always live lives of that sort of trusting, dependent, grateful obedience. The obedience that is faith. But there is a special quality to faith in this context of the already but not yet, in that it can look past what is seen, what meets our experience, to what we hope for. And set in the context of this lament, this longing for things to be what God says they will one day be. Recall from Hebrews 11.1 the way the Hebrews author defined the idea of faith. Not a technical definition, but very much a functional definition. That faith does two things. It brings into the present what doesn't presently meet the eye. What doesn't presently exist. And so faith presumes that there is something yet unrealized. And faith enables that thing that is yet unrealized to be brought into the present and interacted with as present. But faith also, in a related way, enables that which can't be seen, that which can't be detected with the senses, to actually be made manifest. Faith substantiates or gives a a hypostasis, being, subsistence, substance to that which we can't get at with our senses. It brings into the present what doesn't presently exist, and it gives us a substance that we can grab a hold of. Faith functions as a kind of sensory perception that is transcendent. It exceeds our normal five senses. And because, as I said before, all of the Psalms at some level have lamentation or lament as their premise, sometimes their focus, but always their premise. The psalmist, whether speaking for himself or corporately for the people of Israel, is holding out this longing for what doesn't presently meet their experience. And sometimes the calamity that has come upon them because of their failure to actually realize this sonship that God has called them into. But faith is very much at the center of that as well. Faith and lament go together. And so what I want to do today as we continue to kind of develop this out is to uh, look at this challenge that are faith and hope the challenges of faith and hope, which very much go together. And for that, I want us to consider Psalms 42 and 43. Psalms 42 and 43. And the reason for putting these together is that um, most scholars, and I think rightly so, um, view this as one continuous poem. Even though they were separated in the Septuagint, in the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, and in some of the Masoretic texts, which date to about the 9th century AD, um, many believe that originally these two um, psalms were, were one continuous poem. 
And hopefully we'll see how they're related to one another and, in fact, uh, build on and depend on one another. But let me read with you then uh, these two psalms and then I'll uh, note some general observations and then again some particular observations concerning them. This first opening of Psalm 2 is probably very familiar to many of us. We, we see it in lots of different contexts, in writings, uh, other things. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they, my tears, tell me, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. This is a psalm from the sons of Korah, who again were a part of uh, the, those that David chose to lead the worship, the gatekeepers, singers, worship leaders in Israel. Verse 5, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you in despair? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my presence, or the help of his presence, his countenance is the idea. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan, the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers, your waves have rolled over me. I'm overwhelmed. It's like I'm consumed in this. But Yahweh will command his loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all the day long, as my tears testify, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance, and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly people. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling places. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Well, again, these two psalms are held often to be part of the same poem, one extended poem or song. And the thing that has kind of distinguished them is the fact that the one is ascribed to the sons of Korah as a masculine, 
The other is anonymous. Psalm 43 has no ascription tied to it. But you can see already how the two of them are closely related thematically and even in terms of this refrain that occurs three times. Twice in Psalm 42 and then again in Psalm 43. The exact circumstance isn't certain. and talk about some possibilities, but what is very clear here is that the psalmist is agonizing over his sense of separation from God. He has been driven away or taken away or, or it finds himself in a circumstance where he is away from Jerusalem, away from God's sanctuary, and unable to return, somehow bound away against his will. And longing to return. And again, drawing off of this uh, ascription to the sons of Korah, the psalmist is writing as one who is involved in leading the worship, leading the procession. Whether this is one of the three festivals where the the Jews came up to Jerusalem uh, every year, or whether it's something else, but he's looking back to those fond days in Jerusalem of leading the assembly of Israel up to uh, the Temple Mount, up to the temple to engage in this worship of God in song, in prayer, in singing. And many believe, and it may well be the case, that the circumstance here is David's exile from Jerusalem. Remember when Absalom rebelled against him and essentially led an insurrection, rose up against David? David was driven from Jerusalem. And many of those that were faithful to him and allied with him went with him. And there are those who believe that's the circumstance driven out of Jerusalem, longing to be restored back to that place and that time of worship. Now, there are others who believe that this is actually later, after the destruction, during the time of uh, the exile from uh, uh, Judea, after the Babylonian destruction in 586 BC. Remember, the city was burned, the temple was burned. And the Babylonians took everyone but the very poorest of the land. They, they drove all of the people of Judea out and, and dispersed them. And that was the beginning of the diaspora that continued really up to the time that Jesus came into the world. The one problem with that, and it's not absolute, but if this is in fact penned by the sons of Korah, we don't know how long those worshipers continued in any sense, that David had appointed them, and we know that they went at least up to the time of Jehoshaphat. But did they continue in any sense in a, in, in a way where they were still recognized as a group of of uh, um, worship leaders or singers after the exile when the temple was destroyed. The, the, the sense here is that the temple still stands. The sense here is a longing to be restored back. And I think that's what leads that along with the fact that this is ascribed to the sons of Korah, who were the, the order of singers and musicians among them that David appointed, that they point to this 
exile from Jerusalem that David was subjected to at the hands of Absalom. And I can't be sure, and we don't know for sure, and it's not essential to know because the, the fundamental meaning and significance of the psalm stands either way. The general situation is absolutely clear, which is that, again, as I said, the psalmist was agonizing, even to the point of despair, agonizing over his separation from God. Being away from God's dwelling place, being away from Jerusalem. And on top of that, having to endure the oppression, the taunts, the reviling of people around him and probably with those that were with them saying, see, where is your God? Look what has come upon you. Driven from Jerusalem, driven from his presence, separated from God, where is he? He's forsaken you. He's abandoned you. And those taunts obviously succeeded or they had their effect together with what went on in the psalmist's own mind because he himself reached the conclusion God had rejected and forgotten him. He says that. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? Those things coming into his head all the time. Where's your God? Where's your God? He doesn't care. He's forsaken you. The psalmist began to believe it. He began to own it. Even to the point of despondency, he was losing hope. He was physically distant from Jerusalem, from the temple, from the place of encounter with God, but he also felt a very stinging relational separation Why have you rejected me? Why have you forgotten me? It's not just that I miss being able to go up and lead the worship at the temple in Jerusalem. It's that Yahweh had rejected him. Yahweh had abandoned him. Well, as I said, the two psalms together uh, form a unit, and they share this common refrain which you see in verse 5 and then verse 11 of Psalm 42 and then verse 5 of Psalm 43. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed? Why are you agitated within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. In one instance, it's the help of his countenance and then it's the help of my countenance, twice, and we'll talk about that. But they fit together in an interesting way in that Psalm 42 is more self-focused, and I don't mean it in a a self-centered, it's all about me sort of way, but Psalm 42 is the psalmist wrestling with his own thoughts, with his own conclusions, with the things he's wrestling with, his own discouragement. He's, in a sense, working out in his own discussion, his own reflections, the agony of his circumstances and his struggle to recover from his despair. He's saying what he would say to God, but he's, he's doing all of this in his own head. He's talking to himself. He's working this through in his own experience. 
Then in Psalm 43, we see him actually taking all of that and now lifting it up in prayer to God. So in Psalm 42, he's grappling with all of this and talking about the, you know, how he would deal with this with God or where, what his thinking is with respect to God. But in Psalm 43, it's a prayer. It's his prayer to God in light of those considerations. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust men. So in term, that's, those are some general observations. In terms of some particulars then, um, as I said, you have the psalmist lamenting, first of all, the fact that he's been, we don't know the circumstances, but he finds himself distant from Jerusalem. He talks about even remembering those days from the Jordan, from the mountains of Hermon. Mount Hermon is actually kind of a series of mountains, but they're the highest points in what was historically the boundaries of Israel, the highest mountains. And they're at the northeast end up in Syria. So the, the suggestion is that he finds himself up in that area, beyond the Jordan. And people have, have argued, what is this Mount Mizar? What, what is that? What does that represent? And I think it's just kind of a, a, uh, an image, a, a poetic idea. There is no mountain of that name. But Mizar means a place of insignificance, a lowly place, a place of, of, of discouragement or a lowly place. So here he is up in the region of, of Mount Hermon, this high place, and he finds himself in the Mount of Nothingness because of this separation from God. He had been removed from God's presence for whatever reason and was facing this constant onslaught, accusations, taunts, reviling, that God had abandoned him. And his own mind and heart had adopted that same accusation. And it brought him to the point of despondency. This is no small crisis of faith. He said, I am despairing. I am despairing. Well, it's from that vantage point then that he, he issues his own uh, exhortation to himself. His longing to be in God's presence and his exhortation to himself. He yearned to be able to be back worshiping God in his sanctuary, but as being reconciled relationally as being reconciled to God. Only in that way would he be able to silence the tears that were saying, where is your God? And silence the accusers, the revilers who were saying, where is your God? But this threefold refrain, that, that again, three times there's this refrain that is repeated shows that he was ultimately convinced, even in his despair, even in his sense of despondency, he was convinced that God would arise and would remedy the situation. He felt abandoned. He was overwhelmed. And that's this imagery of deep calls to deep. Your breakers and waves have rolled over me. It's like if you're... Uh, 
in the ocean and, you know, the waves are big and they just bowl over the top of you and utterly crush you. He felt crushed and overwhelmed at this circumstance. And yet he reminded himself that the sense that God had rejected and abandoned him wasn't really the case. He says in verse 8, the Lord, and this is the, the time when he doesn't refer to him as God, but to, as Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Your Bible may have capital L-O-R-D in verse 8. That's Yahweh. So he's not talking about God in some kind of generic way, but but the God of Israel, the God who has called Israel, the God who has covenanted to Israel, the God who has been faithful to Israel, the God who has promised Israel, the God who has a destiny for Israel according to his purposes for the world, that God, Yahweh the Lord, will command his loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night. And as I've said so many times, loving kindness is this, it's this Hebrew idea of chesed. It does implicate kindness and love, but it means love and kindness or favorability that are tied to fidelity, commitment, integrity, commitment to the covenant, covenant faithfulness. God's loving kindness that are bound up in a commitment that he has made. He bound himself to Israel. He said through Moses, of all the people of the earth, you alone have I loved. In the sense that I chose you for this purpose. My loving kindness will not pass away from you. Whatever it seems, whatever your circumstances. And he uses this expression, he will command his loving kindness towards me. It's as if God would say, I remember, I will command this favor to go out to you because I will not forget. It's a very powerful expression. He will command his loving kindness toward me in the daytime. He was convinced that God would yet arise and God would bring him back into the light. Why? Because God is ever true and faithful to his covenant and his people. God had not rejected him. And it's in the light of that that he repeatedly exhorts himself to hold fast to his hope. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed? Why are you agitated within me? Hope in God. Hope in God. He exhorted himself to hold fast to his hope with the confidence that he would yet find himself in the refuge of God's countenance. It's really the idea of God's face. But, you know, it's often rendered his countenance. And it, but it speaks, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a metaphor for his favorable disposition. I will find myself in the light of God's countenance, God's favorability. He will turn his face again towards me. It's kind of reminiscent of the end of Isaiah, where God says, You want to do something for me. You want to show me. You you want to do something that would cause me to look with favor on you. 
This is the one to whom I will look upon, turn my face in that way. So that's the sort of idea that, that he's expressing here. But again, he first says that, in the, look at verse 5, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. The one who is the help, the one who's, and this idea of help is, is, is the Yeshua idea, the salvation, the deliverance, the rescue idea. I shall praise the one who is, whose countenance is my rescue. Whose countenance is my rescue. And then in verse 11, he says, this rescue of my countenance, Yahweh who is the rescue of my countenance. His countenance is my rescue, and in that way, he rescues my countenance. He turns his face towards me and causes his light, in a sense, to shine in my face. He's the help of my countenance. And the reason that I stress that is because the psalmist is exhorting himself in this way with no indicated sense that he's going to find himself back in Jerusalem. He says, hope in the God who will turn his face back to me, who my rescue will be in his favor that will turn back to me. And that favor will rescue my countenance. It will address my despair, my despondency. He says nothing about his circumstances changing. And with that confidence, then he was assured in himself that he would be able to withstand all the assaults against him. Those that came from the outside and tempted him to unbelief, to fear, to discouragement, to despondency, and those things that were working in his own head. Psalm 43 then completes the poem by voicing the psalmist's prayer to God in light of what he is wrestling with in Psalm 42. So in 42, he gave voice to his anguish, but as he was working this through in his own, like a conversation with himself. In 43, then he cries out to God to rescue him. And associates these adversaries with an ungodly people or nation. And and this is the term goyim, uh, which most often refers to Gentiles. And we don't know here. But it may well be that in this finding himself up in the region of Hermon on the other side of the Jordan, that it's these non-Israelites around him who are saying, look at you, you find yourself here. You Israelites who say God is your God. You Israelites who say the Lord is with you, the Lord cares for you, the Lord is for you, and here you find yourself in exile, you find yourself away. Where is your God? How is he any better than the gods of the nations? 
So I don't know for sure who these individuals are, but here he refers to them as an ungodly nation or an ungodly people. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation, the deceitful and unjust man. In 42, he expressed in his own wrestling and grappling his confidence that God would restore him. And here he externalizes that hope in a plea to Yahweh to make it happen. He believed that the Lord's loving kindness would restore him to his presence. You will command your loving kindness towards me. Now he pleads with God, interestingly note, to dispatch his light and his truth to guide him back. He calls on God to dispatch his light and his truth to lead him back. He doesn't say, send an army. <laughs> he doesn't say, deal, you know, assuming that it is even the, the Davidic exile thing. He doesn't say, get David back on the throne. He says, send out your light and your truth to guide me back. Very important. And he expressed this being led back, this being guided back as returning to Yahweh's holy hill, the site of God's dwelling place. But yet he makes it clear that it wasn't so much about a place, but, but Zion, the temple mount, the holy hill, the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God, that was where God was encountered. His ultimate desire is that God's light and truth would lead him back to God himself. And he says that, verse 3, Send out your light, your truth, let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling place. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will go to God, my exceeding joy. Yahweh's countenance would rescue him and in that way would rescue his own countenance. But he saw it as God's light and God's truth that would bring him back. And there are two ways that that could be understood. And I think both are valid, but the second, I think, is is really the marrow of this. Uh, The first would be... uh, uh, Again, the light and truth leading him back, a physical return to to Jerusalem, to Zion, to God's dwelling place. And in that case, these, these metaphors or these images of light and truth would speak to God's goodness and his veracity, his truthfulness. In other words, God, you promised, you covenanted that Israel would be your people. You covenanted that you would be our God, we would be your people, you would dwell with us. Send out your light and truth in the sense of uphold your goodness, uphold your truthfulness, and bring me back. And bring us back, whoever is there with him. The second, I think, is more significant and probably more at the heart of this not so much the physical return idea as a relational return. Remember, his despair, his despondency is tied to this idea that he felt that God had rejected him. God had forgotten him. 
And in that way, light and truth signify the psalmist's recognition that the restoration to Yahweh that he sought would involve a restored relationship that would come through repentance. Now, not repentance in the sense of behavioral change. That's not really even the meaning of repentance. We tend to use repent as, have you stopped doing this behavior, stopped doing that behavior? But repentance, metanoia in the Greek uh, rendering, is a changing, a a shifting of the mind, a a shifting of the thinking. And so the idea, God, send out your light and truth to lead me back to you. He understood that what was necessary to really restore this, his presence with God, was reordered thinking and a right perspective by being a fresh illumination to the truth. He needed to think differently. He's despairing. He's despondent. All of these naysayers are getting through to him. He's starting to doubt God. He's starting to say, you've rejected me. You've forgotten me. And then he says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you agitated within me? Hope in God. Send forth your light and your truth to bring me back. His plea to the Lord is his plea for fresh insight and understanding. And so to a revitalized faith and a restored hope. A revitalized faith and a restored hope. And, you know, it's very likely true that he longed to see himself and those with him to be able to be restored back to the covenant land, to be back in Jerusalem, to be back leading the throngs of worshipers. I have no doubt that if if that could be accomplished, he would want to see that happen. But he also understood, importantly, that this relationship with God, this this sense and, and, and interaction with the presence of God, transcended the temple and worship there. He understood that it was grounded in a relationship of the knowledge of the truth and trust in the one who is truthful. He doesn't just want to be back in Jerusalem at the temple. He wants to be restored to God, the living God. And so he knew that he'd come to recognize, even in praying this out, that he, the answer to his own despondency and longing was renewed faith and hope, the hope that faith engenders. I said at the outset that lament is, is a primary, if not the, it is a primary dimension of worship. Because lament is perceiving and owning the truth and seeing the shortfall between in this dynamic of already but not yet. Living with God according to the truth is a life of lament, just as Jesus lived in this world in a state of lament. But faith is bound up in that because in order to lament in a way that is worship, you have to believe and own and know the truth. 
And my point is that as lament properly understood is is at the very center of worship, so is faith, even to the point that all worship without faith is empty and meaningless. At best, it's simply deferring to some imagined deity or some imaginary set of religious principles or truths or whatever, hopeful expectations, whatever they may happen to be. But in the absence of faith, there is no worship. But where faith is present, here's the point of the psalm, where faith is present, there is no distance between God and the worshiper, whatever the geographical situation. You see, the psalmist understood that the answer to resolving the distance between him and God was not being moved back to Jerusalem per se, but a fresh insight and a fresh ownership of the truth and the engendering of the hope that's tied to that. That's what it would mean for him to be back with his God. So to conclude then, whatever actual distance existed between the psalmist and his God, not physical, but whatever relational distance existed, it was not on God's part, it was on the psalmist's part. It was the result of his flawed perceptions and his lack of faith. It wasn't a problem of geographical distance. When I was thinking about this, my mind went back immediately even to Jacob. You know, Jacob had to learn that lesson that God wasn't a God in the way that the ancient world understood gods. Deities were geographical entities. They lived in a certain domain. And and they presided over a certain people within a certain domain. They fought for their own domain. So the nations had their gods, and when the nations combated each other, and whoever won, that was the triumphant God. And Jacob, when he's leaving the promised land, fleeing from Esau, he has that encounter at Bethel, where God says, go and I'll be with you. You you don't have to be afraid of leaving this land. I'll go with you and I will be with you there and I will bring you back. And Jacob said, if you will indeed do that, then you will truly be my God, right? That was the ladder to heaven, Genesis 28. Jacob learned that lesson. Joseph learned that lesson in Egypt. God wasn't back in Canaan. God was with him in Egypt. And that relationship and the the intimacy, the presence of God was mediated through Joseph's faith, his faithfulness. God fills his creation, but he is relationally present through faith. Through ownership of the truth and devotion to the truth. The answer that the the psalmist came to recognize through his own grappling and even through his own praying, the answer to his sense of abandonment and despair was renewed faith and hope. So as we look at these psalms, you know, they can seem kind of distant from us. Who's this guy? What is he talking about? Where is he? What's going on? This is all kind of, you know, old Jewish stuff. We don't really know quite what to make of it. But it's profoundly important in terms of of the principles that it speaks 
to our lives as well. The struggle that the psalmist was wrestling with is a struggle that all of us have at some point in our lives, right? We all, regardless of what the particulars are, we all have the sense from time to time, the desperate feeling of being distant from God, maybe even abandoned by him. Where are you? Where are you? Where did you go? And we have those around us who in various ways, sometimes overtly, sometimes indirectly, sometimes in a very kind of manipulative way, but we have those around us who assault and afflict us with the taunts of where is your God? You call yourself a Christian. I thought God loves you. I thought God cares about you. Why is it not going this way? Why are you having a hard time? Why did you lose your job? Why did you lose your spouse? I thought God cared about you. You Christians say your God is this loving all power. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Why is the world going to hell in a handbasket? Why is there suffering in the world if God is a good God, right? Why, why, why? A lot of Christian kids go off to college and they get their heads handed to them because they just, their faith is just kind of this simplistic little mantra of Jesus died for my sins and I'm going to heaven. And they go off to college and they get their heads handed to them by professors and other people who can just rip all of this to shreds, right? Where is your God? Where is this God? And so just like the psalmist, we too in those times of despair, those times of despondency, those times where our faith is rocked, we have to grasp around in the darkness. We have to fight to hold on to what we know to be true. Not how we feel, what we know to be true. We have to grasp in the darkness, hold on to what we know to be true, and cling to it by faith. I know whom I have believed. I know what he's promised. I know what he's said. And in that way, find our hope revived. God's integrity, his demonstrated faithfulness that the psalmist even then could point to and say, God has been faithful to his people. He will be faithful going forward. Well, that faithfulness is now, it's become yes and amen in Jesus, the Messiah. God has shown in the preeminent way that he's faithful to his purposes. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God said, I have done what I said I was going to do. This is the beginning of the new creation that will take everything into its grasp. All things are to be made new. I said I would do it. The resurrection is the proof of that. And so we have all the more the assurance that God has not forsaken or uh, in any sense abandoned or rejected his people. All that is needed is to reach out for his light and his truth that have already come and are being poured out by his spirit. 
and all sense of distance and alienation will evaporate. And we will again find ourselves praising God and the Lamb in his presence. Think of Revelation 5 again, as we read last time. Not that circumstances will change. The change takes place up here. Send out your light and your truth that they would guide me back to your presence, that I would again praise you. And so these psalms give us important insight into what really is faith and hope. Certainly faith is one of the central words in the Christian vocabulary, but we rarely define it or think about what it really is. It's like gospel. What really is the gospel? But how often do we really, we talk about living by faith and Christians are defined by faith and Christians have faith or whatever. But what is this faith and how does hope relate to it? And these psalms show us what they are. And in that way, they also expose the natural counterfeits that too often are what we call faith and hope. First of all, there are two aspects of the same phenomenon. If faith makes present what doesn't presently exist and allows us to see or it gives substance to that which we can't see with our eyes, then faith is the basis of hope. Faith is what lets us see what we can't see, and that's what we hold on to in hope. Faith is the settled conviction of the truth as God has made it known. And hope then is the sure confidence that that truth will come to pass because God is faithful. And so you can't truly believe God. You can't have faith and not believe that he'll fulfill what he's promised. You can't have faith in what he said and what he's done and not believe that he will complete that, that he will finish, that he will do what he says. But on the other hand, then, that sort of trust, that sort of hope is grounded in informed faith. These are not just nebulous ideas that float around out in space. So faith and hope are inseparable and they're fundamental to a living relationship with God. But they are exclusively the property of those who are brought into God's own uh, illumination. Why? Why why are faith and hope strictly in in our age, you know, in the age of, of Christ having come and done his work, why are they strictly a Christian thing? Why are faith and hope just a Christian thing? Because, again, of their nature. Faith is conviction. It's believing what God has said, who God is, what he's done, what he's doing, where this is going, and holding on to that in hope. It's it's centered in the person, the word, and the work of God. Therefore, there is no faith and hope for those who are disconnected from him. Now, there's a natural facsimile that people hold on to, but it's not scriptural, biblical faith and hope. Those natural counterparts are entirely personal. They're entirely subjective. They're bound to individual personal concerns and interests. 
what I believe, what I expect, what I long for, what I want to see come into existence, what I want to see occur. I believe for what I want. I believe for outcomes, circumstances, situations that fit my sense of how things ought to be. And I hope I hold on to that. And then often in, in the sense of a, of a God coming into the equation, I write him into that as the one who can make that happen. That sort of faith and hope are purely individual and they are radically human. They have no essential connection to anything outside of ourselves, let alone to the God who actually exists. They're radically human and radically personal, what we call faith and hope. But scriptural faith and hope are antithetical to that. They are entirely objective They are centered in the person, in the word, in the work of God. Faith and hope have nothing to do with what we think or we want or we expect or we wish would be the case. They are owning and holding tightly to the truth as it is in God. They have nothing to do with individual desires, goals, and expectations. They They are the appropriate, the essential, the necessary response to objective truth as it exists in God, as he's revealed it, as he's enacted it, as he's bound it up in Jesus himself. This is why we talk about faith in Jesus. That's what it's really all about. Last thing then, what then is the answer when we are despairing of God's presence and favor? And all of us have to say we feel that way at times. What is the answer when we're despairing of God's presence and his favor? God, why have you turned away from me? Why have you left me? Where did you go? Why don't you care? Why don't you notice? Well, we have to discipline our minds to rehearse and hold tightly to what God has said is true. That's what the psalmist had to do. Why are you despairing hope in God? We have to discipline our minds in the fire, in the chaos, in the dysfunction, in the agony. We have to grasp in the darkness and hold on to the truth. It's not easy. When things are spun up, when when our souls are in the muck and the mire and the dust, it's hard to hold on to the truth. But we have to do that. And by the truth, I mean who this God has revealed himself to be, ultimately in Jesus himself. What he has done, what he is doing, where this is going, how do we fit into this? What does it mean to be his children? How, what does it mean that we are taken up in his life and love in Jesus, who is the exalted, glorified, consummate image son, the firstborn of God's new creation? This is why Paul, this was his burden for the Christians that he wrote to. He said to the Ephesians, 
you're believers. He didn't say, okay, just go on and live your lives. He said, my burden is that the eyes of your hearts would be illumined. Light and truth. That you would know what is the hope of your calling. That you would know what really are the riches of the glory of the inheritance that God has given to his saints. That is awaiting you. And that you would really understand and perceive and experience the surpassing greatness of his power, which is unto you who believe. It's not just an ethereal theological idea. It is manifest by his spirit. It is poured into your own life. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. That power that is unto you who believe. And he said to the Colossians, if you've been raised up in Christ, and you have, if you are his, you are seated in a new reality of existence, empowered by God's own power in his life and his spirit. Keep seeking that which is above, where you actually are. Keep striving to live into the truth of who you are. Set your hearts and your minds on things above, not on the earth. You died. Your lives are hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. When he's manifested to the world, to the creation, in all of his glory, you will be manifested in the same glory. Keep your head in that space. Keep your heart in that space. Discipline yourselves to focus on what is true, not how you feel, not what's happening around you. Not the country melting down, not your family melting down, not your job going away. Whatever, you know, whatever is, is this thing that is so difficult for us in the moment. That's the way that we seek our God and our Father. And in that way, we will find our sense of abandonment and despair fall away. And we will find our hearts reanimated, reengaged in a worshipful communion with our God regardless of the circumstance. See, the early Christians understood this, and that's how they set the world on fire. We often say, you know, why is the church so irrelevant? Why does nothing happen? Why does, does the church have no voice or no impact in the world? Why did a handful of people turn the ancient world upside down? Because they thought this way. They didn't go into the world and say, let me tell you how you as an individual can go off to heaven. They said, Jesus is Lord. What that means is God has raised him up, set him over all things, given him authority over all creation, and he is working this work of new creation in the world, and we are the first fruits of that. And they lived that out in all the various ways in the communities they were a part of. It was a radical trans creational transformation. It wasn't just a method to go off to heaven. They turned the world upside down. Did they struggle? Yes. Were they persecuted? Yes. Were they put to death? Yes. Was life hard? Yes. Much harder than it is for us. And yet they had a joy surpassing, full of glory. They knew whom they had believed. They turned the world upside down with their faith and their hope and their joy and their peace. 
Saints, I pray it's the case for us. I really do. Father, I preach these things to my own heart as much to everyone here because this is the sea we swim in. We may not experience the exact agony, the exact sense of loss and despair that the psalmist felt. And and even that dynamic in each of our lives is unique. And even as it recurs in our own experience, it may take a different form resulting from a different source or circumstance multiple times throughout our lives. But Father, I pray that our refrain would be that refrain of the psalmist, that we would, in the midst of the darkness and the chaos, even when we feel like we're crumbled into pieces on the ground, we would be able to say, why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God. And that our prayer would always be, Father, send forth your light and your truth. Guide us back to you. You never go anywhere, but our hearts wander, our minds wander in discouragement, in fear, in concern, in all of the things that press us in our lives, inside of our heads and from the outside. So many things that would drive us away from you. Father, send forth your light and your truth that we would be brought back. We don't need to go anywhere. We don't need to have anything change in our circumstance. We simply need to have our hearts and minds gathered back to you. Meet us in that way. And Father, may we be helpers of one another in that way. That when one is drowning in despair, that we would be that cord of life. We would help each other in that way. It's another crucial way in which the body causes the body to grow. But meet us in our need. Father, do give us the courage of our convictions and the firm, unwavering sense that you are always the same. And you have vouched to us your faithfulness, your truthfulness, your integrity in accomplishing your purposes in the incarnation, in the death and resurrection, in the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the proof that we need that our God is faithful and that the destiny that you've appointed for us will be realized, as indeed for the whole creation. Cause us to hope in our God that Jesus would be exalted in his church, and in that way that we too would turn the world upside down by our faith, by our hope. Amen.